Welcome back to Extra Points with Daniel Villarreal, exploring extra points in LGBTQ sports history and culture with special guests who explain their significance. I'm your host, Daniel Villarreal, and today we're going dancing. What are you looking at? <laughs> no, no, we already covered Vogue and ballroom dancing in Extra Points Episode 3. Today, we're partnering up in the world of contra dancing. If you've never been contra dancing, it looks a bit like square dancing and a bit like line dancing. They derive from old 17th century country dances. They usually involve large groups of opposing dancers who frequently switch partners. The concept is simple, but the dances can vary from easy to learn to very complex. You could end up dizzy, sweaty, breathless, or just having a darn good time. You can now find queer contra dances, which welcome all able-bodied members of the LGBTQ community and use genderless terms for their lead and following positions in many U.S. cities, including Chicago, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and Madison, Wisconsin. But is it a sport? This is more than just a navel-gazing question. When I first started this show, I wanted to examine the very concept of sports in the queer community. What makes a sport? Is it the level of skill, sweat, or physical ability? Is it whether it's judged, scored, or whether its participants are rewarded? Why are some games, like video games, accepted in the sports world under the banner of eSports, while others, like board games, are sometimes excluded from the very idea of sporting altogether? Contradancing walks this fine line. I've never heard of queer contradancing as a sport, nor has it ever come to be regarded as such. But to better understand where it came from, what's so queer about it, why it hasn't been gamified into a sport, and what it has to offer the queer and other communities, I spoke with Chris Ricciotti, who has been organizing and participating in queer contradancing since 1987, and Stephen Ulrich, who has been doing the same for seven years now. We spoke individually, so I've integrated their separate responses into one interview. Here it is. I was wondering if you can tell me a little bit about kind of like how you got started in queer contradancing, how long you've done it, and just kind of a little bit about what initially drew you to it. Here's Chris Ricciotti. The idea actually came somewhere around uh, late 1986 after a conversation. Uh, I was in a men's uh, choral group at the time, and they, uh, during one of the intermissions uh, and uh, practice sessions, I heard somebody speaking about going to a gay rodeo, which I'd never heard of before back then. And in following up on the conversation, and they said, after that, we went to a square dance. And I immediately turned around and asked, do you mean a gay square dance? And he said, oh, yeah, they've been doing it out there for years. And as soon as I heard that, I knew that I needed to marry my two loves together of both being gay, newly out, and as well as the idea of starting uh, a group that would uh, allow gay people to be dancing together. I had had this idea back in 1981 or two, and I thought about the interesting idea of having uh, gay people like myself, be able to get together and do an activity such as this. And almost just as quickly, I dismissed it, thinking it would be something that would be impossible and who could possibly be interested in something like this. So I think a lot of our younger listeners might not really understand where the need from this arose from. I mean, like, you know, why couldn't LGBTQ people simply just go to mainstream dancing opportunities that were already there and just participate there? Why, why, why was the need for genderless or specifically queer spaces um, uh, necessary? Well, um, back in, I came out in 
November of 1985. And back then, pretty much all you had was barely any social groups. Uh, and usually they were kept pretty quiet. Uh, but more than anything else, there was the gay bar scene. And in the gay bar scene, um, it was kind of like going back to high school. Um, my initial thought was, great, I'm going to a, um, a location that would give us uh, some great opportunities for socializing, you know, there'll be good acceptance and so on. And what I found out, at least for me and for my social needs, was that it was like going back to the high school locker room. There was um, a lot of um, kind of comparing back and forth. There was a lot of bitchiness. There was a lot of backbiting, um, turf wars. And I thought to myself, this really isn't what I wanted. Um, they were usually very loud, very smoky, did not allow for you know, quiet conversations or even getting to know people. And I really needed something more socially. I really, uh, I fell in love with dancing when I was six years old. And it became one of the first motor skill coordinated activities that I could do and do really well. I loved the music. I loved the movement. Um, I really wasn't very good with sports, but I wanted something that I could call my own in a social environment. And this is something I took to at a very young age. And I wanted to do what I could to, to help um, create that space that felt not only safe, but engaging and uh, allowing for, for good connections. And here's Stephen Ulrich. It all started with a guy I met on Grindr. Uh, I'm sure that's a novel beginning to a story. This is a guy that I never actually slept with. I just had lunch with him downtown a few times. And he was the organizer for Chicago's Career Contradance. And he texted me and kept saying like, oh, there's this dance event you should come to. Some evening a date had fallen through and I was at home stewing and I was like, I should get out of the house. And he invited me to this thing and fine, I guess I'll go. And I had a fantastic time. It was confusing and challenging and friendly at the same time. It was an explicitly queer dance that I went to. With gender neutral calling terminology, uh, we use bands and bear arms for what uh, a lot of traditional dances uh, call ladies and gents. This was an earlier term. One, it was bands and bear arms, and you would wear a band around your right arm, and that is the lead. So you would always end a swing with the uh, banded arm between the two dancers so that you are in the right place. The term that has largely supplanted that is larks and ravens. Larks, L, being the one who ends up on the left, and ravens, R, being the one that ends up on the right. Actually, I should say larks and robins. There's, you know, there's always a terminology challenge. This one related to some Native Americans in the Pacific Northwest for whom raven is sort of a... a Moiety, I think, is the correct term, an identity term. And so it is, uh, in some sense, dysphoric for them to dance as a thing that they are not. And so they decided to go with Robin, which seems safer, despite having a naming conflict with a dance move called the Mad Robin. Queer is sort of defined in contrast to something. And so I didn't, since I started in queer dance, for me, that is what the norm is. And when I went into mainstream, as I'll call it, dancing, the thing that struck me was people suddenly started caring that I was on this specific side all the time. I should have been the band, not the bear arm. 
the lark, not the raven, every time. And when I was dancing raven, particularly with someone female presenting dancing lark, which I love to do, in part because it, you know, mixes things up for people, but uh, we were corrected. We were told, no, you're in the wrong place by people who are less experienced than either of us and knew they were less experienced than either of us were giving us the, no, 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 you're in the wrong place. When I would go to swing a gentleman along the line, because in contra dancing, you are dancing not just with your partner, but with your neighbor, who is generally the opposite role, I would very frequently get awkward swings, avoidance of eye contact, which is very not in the spirit of contra. Contra includes a lot of eye contact and just general awkwardness in the straight, the mainstream contra dances. Uh, in the queer contra dance community, I dance with men, I dance with women, I dance with people, with non-binary people. And there's not really like this expectation that you will be able to read where someone should be from their general appearance. And that is fun and for some people challenging, especially if you're used to having that to rely on. Do you consider it a sport of any sort? It was definitely uh, a bit of exercise and it was a good bit of fun and there are rules and you uh -huh. know, certain conventions and roles, but, but would you consider it a sport or, or even athletic? It is definitely not sprinting and it's arguable whether or not it's comparable to a marathon when you're dancing all day, but you do end up with, you know, dance related injuries. And I dress like I'm working out and I certainly sweat up a storm during it. So is it a sport? It's exercise. Yes. Uh, it's definitely not competitive and it's not judged. I mean, you know, dancers sometimes judge one another, but not like uh, rated, shall we say, not in any formal sense. So we're, we're not going to see it like on ESPN or see like some sort of like world championship contra dancing. God, no, that would be so weird in part because it is something where it is very much a community dance. It is a community activity. And the, the teams, particularly when you're talking queer contra, become very fluid in that sense, because, you know, you're dancing with one, you and your partner are dancing with one set of neighbors for one set of the dance, and then you're dancing with a new set of neighbors. And ideally, you're dancing with everyone in the line over the course of a single dance. So it doesn't have recognizable teams, but it doesn't have records you can set like in, um, I, I mean, I was a competitive swimmer for a long time. And uh there is a team scoring in that, which I never paid attention to while I was swimming competitively. It was always about my times and was how I was doing compared to my past self and how I was trying to do better in the future. And Contra does have a little bit of that, but not in a tract or numerical sort of way. There are definitely comparisons of, oh, that one's a really skilled dancer. I love dancing with this person. Um, I love the way they twirl me. I love the stability they provide, the, the weight they give. Um, so there's definitely a technique to it and skill. It's, it's a funny thing. I wouldn't, a sport isn't the word I would use to describe it, but I would not object to someone else describing it that way. You know, it seems like in our modern era, there is always a sort of push to gamify or, uh, turn everything into a reality uh, show competition. And, and there have been other dance competitions. Live from Hollywood, this is Dancing with the Stars. A few episodes back, we talked about how voguing and ballroom uh, performance <laughs> um, can be compared to sports. I wonder how contra dancing has resisted that allure. Maybe it's what you just said about 
the fact that it's more about an entire team and an entire squad as opposed to just being about individual competitors or competitors at all. And I mean, one of the things is that the culture of Contra encourages you to switch partners between dances, to bring and invite new people in. There's a conscious correction that a lot of the dances I've been to encourage, where they encourage dancers, experienced dancers in particular, to dance with new dancers. And they strongly discourage new dancers from dancing together because to the extent that there is a skill component, if you have two people screwing it up together, in this elaborate network. One person screwing up in isolation with three people around them, helping them figure it out is much easier to correct than two people out of four screwing it up. And then the the damage can propagate. The damage to the pattern of the dance, as it were, can propagate. Contradancing is very much about, this is a fun thing we're doing together because it's fun. And we want to help other people have fun. And in many cases, the more the merrier. Here's Richie Audi again. Well, I think a lot of this, again, has to do with the tradition around the dance itself. The tradition was built in local communities to the entertainment and the enjoyment of people coming together. Ballroom dancing um, could potentially do that, but you need a lot of classes to get to a certain point, and then it becomes more of a competition. It wasn't built on a folk tradition. It was built more on the need of people who really enjoy excelling and being expert at a dance form rather than just coming together and just enjoying the dance. I think that's one of the things that has inhibited people coming to dance today is they see things on TV such as Dancing with the Stars, these ballroom competitions and other uh, dance forms. And people look at that as saying, oh, this is incredible entertainment, but I don't know if I could do that. Contra dancing has its sights set in a very different way. It does not look at, it's not being represented on TV as an entertainment because it isn't a visual entertainment. It is a physical entertainment, one that incorporates you being a part of it, not you coming to watch. In fact, anybody who comes to watch this uh, will soon find out that people will be asking them to dance all night because that is the focus of what it's there for. It's to bring people together to have a good time. It's not there as an entertainment for people to spectate on. How do you think the existence of queer contradancing has benefited the contradance community? Here's Ulrich again. It makes the it makes contradancing more welcoming and inclusive. It pulls more people into the community. It's interesting because the my journey from queer contra to mainstream contra happened when I was the organizer and I didn't know when the next Queer Contra was going to be because I didn't have a space set up for it and I was at a loss and I needed my Contra dancing fix by that point in time. I had gotten so into it that I wanted wanted more and I didn't know when the next one was going to be. So I guess I was going to have to try out this mainstream one, uh, which worked out kind of like that initial reluctance to go to the Queer Contra dancing thing because these guys were good. They were much better than the, the Queer Contra dance community And I learned a lot in the first few weeks of going there uh, and really enjoyed it. But it was a little off-putting to, you know, have these expectations based on my gender presentation, which is pretty clearly masculine. um, And I very much identify as cis male. I don't feel like that should determine where I have to dance. And I think having that flexibility and less 
restrictive, less restrictive gender expectations. So it makes the community more inclusive. And I've seen, uh, and I, I'm not going to take full credit for this, maybe just a little bit, but I deliberately cross-pollinated the groups. So once I got the queer country group up and running again, I started inviting people from the mainstream to the queer group and the queer group to the mainstream group. And uh, I think that's done good things for both of them. I know that the mainstream group, and this is Chicago specifically, has become more inclusive, more welcoming. And it's, you know, not perfect. You can definitely tell uh, that there are people there who are not pleased when I am dancing in a follow position. But they're the exception. They are a much rarer exception than they were when I started going there. And the skill level at the Queer Contra is so much higher, so much higher than it used to be. And so I think that there's a lot of value in having queer normative spaces in general so that people can relax a bit and don't have to keep as much of a guard up, queer people specifically, about, oh my God, how are people going to react or take this? Is it safe for me to talk about my gender expression, my sexual orientation? Will people, as a cis-presenting dude, look at me funny if I have painted nails in a skirt? It is a an important thing for people to be able to be comfortable to be themselves, whatever version of themselves that might be, in an environment where they're not being policed uh, well, for their expression. Well, and it seems like if you were able to do that and normalize that sort of presence in a contra-dance space, then that experience might well carry over into other non-dancing spaces where queer Absolutely. Are, you know. This is a most of the time sober and if you're not if you are heavily not sober well there there are some people probably who can dance well while they are not sober but for the most part you can tell when somebody's not sober and they're I mean, the dances are quite complex and so if you show up and they're tipsy <laughs> chances are you might stumble trip over yourself or just get things plain wrong exactly contra dancing is a space to socialize in a sober setting without sexual pressures for queer people, which is something that is often in short supply. So that is a way in which contradancing is a good for the uh, queer community. Something that struck me when you invited me was that there was a large variety of body types, genders, ages, uh, and experience levels, um, yep. you know, gender expressions. And so, I mean, much, much more diverse than what I would find at a, a typical bar, which typically is just, you know, a lot of cis gay men and, you know, kind of the go-go boy or bear set. And so there seemed to be something, and it also felt like a, a kind of a fun PE class rather than like a, you know, cruising um, uh, type of thing. <laughs> so that was, both were kind of refreshing. That is a deliberately cultivated thing. When I was running Chicago's Queer Contra Dance, uh, I, someone came up with a brilliant idea of let's have a nude contra dance event um, because there was a nude country dancing event and wouldn't it be great uh, that was you know put on by the predominantly cis gay white male group um, and I thought that that was not as welcoming and inclusive because there are a lot of people who aren't comfortable being naked and a lot of people who aren't comfortable dancing naked. And I'm not sure I'm comfortable dancing naked. It sort of sets the wrong tone and vibe for how I see the dancing. Um, and so I said no. And there are other people who feel differently about that. Here's Richie Audi again. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the tradition itself. Contra dancing grew out of a tradition that came over on the Mayflower of 
folk dances or folks dancing together as a community. Um, and as we took that tradition and Americanized it over, you know, a couple of hundred years and added all of the traditions uh, that came into New England, uh, folk dance traditions of Scotland, Ireland, Cape Breton, and, and other locations, that tradition of the folks coming together to create a community dance, that is a dance that um, brings your community to together to have um, a good social time, that never left, that never changed. There are dance communities that um, spun off of traditional dance, uh, say, for instance, the square dance craze that started in the 20s and 30s and went through the 60s and then even later than that and eventually got picked up by the gay groups. Although they were a social community dance, they also had levels. And in order for you to participate in these levels, you had to go to classes, which meant that, again, there was kind of a, a continuum. You were either this level or this level or what have you. Contradancing never really subscribed to that. In fact, they broke away from that idea because contradancing was starting to move in that direction. But people really felt that it was important to preserve a tradition where people just come together to have fun. You can walk in off the street, never having danced before. And in a short period of time, you can learn how to do the basic steps and have a great time with a whole room of people that you've never met before. It is really um, an amazing uh, social activity um, that takes very little to get involved with and can be tremendously um, satisfying. I'm curious, in what ways do you think that the queer contradance community has benefited both the contradance community and also the queer community? Well, it's interesting because these two groups were running parallel to each other for, for quite some time. Um, for a long time, the straight community uh, weren't really comfortable coming to our dances, although we occasionally would storm their dances and go as a group um, to enjoy what they were doing. Um, and, and it also gave them an opportunity to get to know us. What contradancing offers to both communities and now as a more mixed community is the opportunity to get to meet one another in a safe, warm, welcoming, and inviting um, atmosphere. There are still some um, conventional straight community dances that really aren't quite that open to the idea of gender-free dancing. But the young folks of today are really beginning, are dictating what's important to them. And what some of the more conventional communities are beginning to realize is that if they don't start thinking about how to keep their dances welcoming to younger folks, they may lose them. And younger folks have a different idea about what's acceptable to them in regards to safety, in regards to gender identity, in regards to what will help them feel comfortable in a mixed group setting, mixed genders, mixed age, mixed interests. Um, and so even conventional groups now are beginning to pay attention to what the younger folks feel are important. I know that contradancing stems from 17th century country dances from England and Scotland and France. And it struck me that I don't know that I've ever been to or heard of kind of group dances that come from other kind of non-European and, and, and you know, non-Western 
uh, sources. Like maybe I'll go to like, um, you know, a Chinese dance recital. But, you know, I never really hear of kind of, you know, uh, participatory dance events that come from, you know, other uh, non-Western, non-European countries. Here's Ulrich again. I think that you're making the observation that this is, the contra dancing is a very particular cultural heritage. There's no doubt in my mind that folk dance is a thing that has occurred in a large, in a very geographically disparate nature. Like, I'm sure there were Native American folk dances, Asian folk dances, African folk dances, and I know nothing about pretty much any of them other than contra dance. Let me be very clear about that. An associated question is to what extent is contra dance exclusionary uh, or unwelcoming to people of different ethnic backgrounds? And uh, I've seen people of various uh, ethnic and racial backgrounds dancing, but the majority of dancers are white. Mm. Um, and is that a question of who has the time and, you know, the spare 10 bucks to, to, to attend these, that might be a factor. Uh, I don't, I mean, it's, it's sort of the privilege of the dominant racial group to which I belong to say, like, I don't feel like there is that strong a racial component to this thing that has a very clear, uh, heritage connecting it straight back to Europe through New England. And that's a pretty white Pretty white story right there. I think we can understand, uh, considering this country's uh, racial history, why contra dance and these older forms of country dancing from Western European nations have succeeded in sort of capturing a public space for exploration, uh, both queer and mainstream. And my hope would be that in continuing to do this podcast and conversations with other people from other dance and uh, uh, sports traditions to understand more about different ways that traditions from other nations can start to enter the public sphere and become accessible to people of not only the background from which they stem, but also other backgrounds. Just something what you said jarred loose another little bit of memory that I got from, I don't remember where, (laughs) but I believe Henry Ford out of a very racist intention to preserve white culture uh, invested a lot of money in preserving dance spaces and dance communities for uh, square dance and I believe contra dance. And uh, some of those spaces are in use today. And I, there's definitely a, this isn't some sort of like actor list. This just happened. No one actually cultivated it. I'm sure that, there are there have been issues where resources have been directed in ways to encourage white cultural traditions that were deprived to uh, traditions for other communities, uh, and not strictly due to proportionality or economic resources of communities, but also due to political whatever. I'm not going to say that where we have arrived has been through a, a beautiful path, but I think that good things can still come out of the community in ways that include and uplift uh, minority communities and allow us to connect and engage with them in uh, ways that are not colonialist. God, I would love it if that were true. (laughs) Here's Richie Yachty again. There is a great need, even in our world of technology today, of finding ways of connecting with people and connecting with people in safe ways. Uh, This activity allows you to make connections with lots of people in a short period of time in a safe environment. And it's one of the few activities where you can touch everyone in the room 
safely, comfortably, and in a friendly way, and be able to network and enjoy a community of a whole group of people you've never seen before and have the opportunity of going back and doing it again. Um, there's a lot of FaceTiming. There's a lot of you know networking on Facebook and other things, but these are all non-face-to-face -face connections that people are making. Here's an opportunity for you to go out and enjoy the company of lots of great individuals and also offering the opportunity for building uh, new friendships very quickly and allow you to just have a good time with a group of like-minded people. There aren't too many activities that I know of today that allow that in a non-competitive way and in a way that allows you to meet people safely and in a comfortable environment face-to-face. If you're interested in queer folk dancing, check out Lavender Country and Folk Dances at lcfd.org. There you can find a listing of queer folk dancing events across the United States. I want to thank my guests. Today's episode included acoustic contra music from musicians Brad Davis, Robert Bolwin, and Will Maring. If you like Extra Points, check out Outsport's other podcasts like Five Rings to Rule Them All, The Trans Porter Room, LGBT in the Ring, Level Playing Field, and Three Strikes You're Out with Ken Schultz. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, CastBox, and Player FM. And if you like, please leave a comment, subscribe, and share them with others. It really helps. That's all for Extra Points today. I hope you'll join us when Extra Points returns. <laughs>